Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with my always fantastic co-host, Dan Favalli, fresh off a vacation down in Florida. Uh, we are coming back to you with a slightly premature, but also maybe not so much because we're really down to the stretch run of the season award picks episode where we're going to run through each of the major NBA awards, including the not even really major executive of the year award, uh, go through our ballots, top three for each one, top five for MVP and, and figure out who the favorites for these awards should be. Although I think as always, we've both approached it as who we would be voting for and not necessarily who is actually going to win because sometimes there is a rather sizable discrepancy between those two methods of approaching this conversation. Before we get into any of that though, have to ask Dan, how's it going? Uh, it is good to be back. Uh, I'm excited to, you know, start recording fresh material. We did squeeze in a bunch of recordings before I left you at Grant and myself. So that was great. It was good to hit the reset button a little bit. You know, I suck at unplugging and I once again still sucked, but I won't pretend that Bleach Report was very generous with the amount of time and flexibility they were willing to give me. And I tried to take advantage of it as much as I could. Um, I will be more active in Discord now. If anyone wonders why I've been a little bit quiet in there, I feel like the chatter is down. I don't want to have to be the reason we're having any chatter, but shout out to our Discord members. Join the Discord. Happy to be back, though. It's uh, it's always like you get end of vacation blues, but now that I'm back into the swing of things already, uh, I'm raring to go. And awards talk, good place to start. I think there's still some changes that could happen with three, maybe four of these awards. Yeah. But for the most part, the picture's set. How are you doing, though? I'm surviving. I'm being emotionally terrorized by a three-year-old on a daily basis who's just in full-fledged tantrum toddler nightmare stage. So it's, uh, I feel constantly exhausted, but I'm hanging in there and enjoying some great basketball. Speaking of basketball, it's probably time to begin with the awards. We said we were going to blow through executive of the year since the writers don't pick that anyway. And it's one that, as you mentioned, you can't even get betting odds for. Who are your top three? Yeah, we're going to make this a very abbreviated discussion. Yeah, it, it's always tough with this award because I feel like you get you get candidates who get credit for multi-year processes. So James Jones, I think, deserves love in this conversation because of what he's done for multiple seasons leading up to the ability to re-sign Chris Paul in a way that lifts this team to become the clear-cut number one team in the NBA when all the pieces are working. There are more minor moves to, you know, Torrey Craig um, being chief among them, I think this year, but it's really the Paul re-signing in conjunction with everything else that happened to get it to this point where I think he, he has a case. Uh, Brad Stevens and Pat Riley are my other two, but really this is a tough one because so many of the primary candidates over the year, Colby Altman, Arturis Karnasovas, Daryl Morey, they've had momentum and then it's quickly been ripped away. So I'm not particularly interested in this award because I don't think it's an important one because team building is done over multiple years anyway. And this year's candidates feel especially flimsy across the board. Yeah, I had Pat Riley one and Brad Stevens two, and Stevens' case really developed over time. And Derek White trade seemed like a steep price to pay. That 2028 first round pick swap, I know we romanticized pick. That's really far out into the future. The Celtics, though, prior to Robert Williams III's injury, that they had a case to be the favorite to come out of the East. I wouldn't have picked them, but like they were right there. So you can view White as the missing piece. 
I think also the Kemba trade in retrospect looks really good for them, given how much Al Horford has done. The Robert Williams the third extension itself, that looks like a bargain at this point for Boston specifically. So I think he's the clear number two there. Daniel think, Tice, too. Uh, Can't forget was, about him. That was a really just bad move, if we want to be honest. So that would that hurts his case for me. Uh, Pat Riley, though, just Kyle Lowry. P.J. Tucker's been great for them. Uh, even the, like Caleb Martin, like having a find like that, Gabe Vincent and Max Struess um, sort of paying off, getting to keep convincing Oladipo to stay, even though I'm sure he didn't have a ton of options elsewhere. Um, that's a, you know, that's just, I feel like he's the clear answer. The Heat are first in the East, despite a litany of injuries, and we know they have some drama now. Third seems more open. I tend to not wait the multi-year cases as much. I try to look at it in a vacuum. And like the James Jones uh, case with Chris Paul's contract, I get it. You did bring in JaVale McGee and that's worked out really well. You kind of stumble into Bismack Biombo mid season. Um, I just don't know, like, is that executive of the year material? This is a team that's sort of marinating. I kind of thought about Zach Lehman from Memphis uh, is, is who I penciled in number three at this point, because his might be a little bit of a multi-year case, but like some of the things he did, desire Williams pick and trade overall, Looks really smart, given how well Steven Adams has played, um, what Williams could be as a prospect, and you did sort of increase your future equity. Let's also not forget that the Jaron Jackson Jr. case is here, as uh, extension here as well. That looks like it's going to be fine. This has probably been, I don't want to say a down year for Jackson Jr. offensively, but like this is someone who's going to be better on offense, and to get him at that number should, re- should um, behoove the Grizzlies well moving forward. Uh, the other name that I'm really kind of thinking about here I didn't think I was going to think about is Nico Harrison in Dallas, uh, extracurriculars in Dallas aside. And that's Donnie Nelson. So Nico Harrison isn't involved in that. The KP trade looks excellent for the Mavericks at this point, given how well Spencer Dinwiddie has played. There's also just the signings over the summer. Um, Reggie Bullock has proved to actually be pretty good for them. Um, I already mentioned the Porzingis trade. I think the Dorian Finney Smith extension is going to go a, a long way for them. Like that's a great number to not let him get to free agency. I know they gave him, I'm pretty sure it was the max that they could give him in the extension. At a dude like that, given how well he plays on defense, hit the open market this summer and show him what he's done as just a, a floor spacer or just standstill three-point shooter, he's getting more than they did. And so that was smart. I you could there seems to be a lot if you if you want to say it's Sean Marks or Daryl Morey because of how they made the most out of crappy situations. I'll push back a bunch against Sean Marks. I think Maury's case is weakening given how turbulent the Sixers have been, but you could also give him kudos for waiting out the Simmons situation when everyone just wanted him to settle and take the whatever offer was on the table throughout these months. And regardless of how you feel about James Harden, they're, the, the, the peak of their outcome with him is higher than any other trade that had been mentioned, at least over the next year to three years. So the third was tough, but I think it's Stevens. You sold me on Stevens just before we went into this. I think Pat Riley is probably the clear number one option. And the final thing I'll say is I didn't, I don't know how to weight people who made either obvious draft picks or if the case is their draft pick high in the lottery, like Masai Ujiri going Barnes over subs. That's a big deal. But a lot of what's going on in Toronto is been years in the making there. And then Kobe Altman in Cleveland, they made like, they've done solid, like the Jared Allen contract. He's, uh, I lampooned that in the moment after they drafted Evan Mobley but it's worked out for them. Ditto for the Lowry marketing trade. Cleveland has slipped off. A lot of that has to do with injuries. Picking up Rubio is big for them. I wouldn't quibble if you had him at number three. I think he has a fair case there, but to name him as the favorite, I think just weights the Mobley decision specifically a little too heavily. I like that we went into this episode thinking that we were just going to list names for executive of the year and then just couldn't help ourselves. 
I think it's time to move on to coach of the year. Unless you have any problems with what I have, let's do it. Let's what do, do you it. have? What is? I think our coach of the year ballot is going to end up being identical. If I had to guess. No, about number three. But I feel like the top two are obvious. Number one has to be Monty Williams, just because this Suns team won it last year, by the is, way, yeah, it's a machine. It's, it is as close to a perfect basketball team when operating at full strength as you're going to find in today's NBA. Everything works. The pieces run so smoothly. The balancing job of Chris Paul's stardom and Devin Booker's emerging superstardom has been excellent. All the role players have been able to maximize what they can do when they're on the court. It feels like he is just the obvious favorite. I don't know if he's the most obvious winner of the awards because we haven't gotten to sixth man of the year yet, but he's pretty damn close. At number two, I've got Taylor Jenkins, just another masterful job with the Memphis Grizzlies. Again, the ability to maximize every single piece of the roster. This team has not skipped a beat and sometimes has gotten even better without John Morant on the floor. So the ability to win with that superstar driven offense, and then also win with this collection of, I don't want to say role players, but players who do not enjoy that same celestial status has been nothing but impressive. This Memphis team is so good with so much floor spacing, with so much interior pressure, everything works. Number three is tougher. I ultimately went with Ime Udoka. Uh, his in-season adjustments have been super, super impressive. The defensive schemes that he's drawn up that have fully unlocked a healthy version of Robert Williams III are remarkable. It's unorthodox switching that is all designed to keep Williams in an off-ball help role where he can always rotate over to be that second defender. The offensive schemes have been mostly egalitarian, even though Jason Tatum can be a ball-dominant player. The, the ability for this Celtics team to bounce back from a rough start during his first season as a head coach to become this, this full-fledged juggernaut during the second half of the season before Williams went down, hugely impressive. Wow. So we do not have identical ballots. I had Monty Williams first for all you said, and I did pick Thibodeau last year. And I just think in retrospect, I know the Knicks were the biggest overachiever. When you go and look back, I'm not even, maybe this season taints it a little bit, but when you go and look back, there's a clear difference between overachieving versus like this team was actually maximized. Um, and I think Monty Williams deserved it last year. He's a clear case this year. They've navigated absences from everybody on this team, not as extensive as in some other cases, but Chris Paul, you lose him and everyone just assumed he was the heart and soul of the Suns and you're still just good. Um, you missed Devin Booker for a period of time. Um, you've been able, there's been weird stuff with the center rotation at points this season. The growth we've shown, seen from DeAndre and the growth we've seen from Cam Johnson. Monty Williams and his coaching staff have done a fantastic job uh, and he's the clear choice. I urge Foster number two because when you're talking about um, Taylor Jenkins, who is number three for me, there's a, I feel like that Thibodeau uh, explanation is creeping in here where the Grizzlies, to me, are still overachieving when you look at their personnel. The methods by which they've done it have been absolutely incredible, um, but there's nothing too complicated about their offense. It's get out and run, crash the offensive glass, and if you don't do that and John Morant isn't able to make a spectacular play, you are at a disadvantage. Credit a ton to the defense that they've come up with. He's third on my ballot. Again, that's not an insult. Eric what it's worth, Spolstra, Spolstra is a close fourth on mine. He is, he's a machine himself. And the Heat have dealt with, you look at Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, and Kyle Lowry, they are not even a top 500 played trio this season. That's how much stuff the Heat 
I've been dealing with. When you've seen the level of what PJ Tucker has brought, what Gabe Vincent until recently had done for Miami, even sort of empowering Tyler Hero, um, getting Duncan Robinson to work through his slump, or even finding workarounds because Duncan Robinson hasn't been as good. The Heat's half-court offense is definitely flimsy. That's also a personnel issue. And the fact that they've been able to find ways around this all season, they're also, they're just at the top of the Eastern Conference right now. They might not finish there, but no one predicted that at the start. Like, yes, could they come out of the East? Maybe, but you assumed it was going to be Brooklyn or Milwaukee. There was at this point in the season, oh, could it be Chicago? They were going on a run. And just the sustainability of what Spellstra does year in and year out, I do think that matters. And you were dealing with a pretty significant addition in Kyle Lowry. So I get why Ime Udoka is here. But like Spolstra's case to me is more of a full season case than uh, than Boston's. When you just look at what the Celtics have done this year, where it literally took sort of a a mid season turnaround and and you know late season surge for them to get to this point, the Heat and the Suns and the Grizzlies and their coaches, their staffs, it's been more of a wire to wire accomplishment to me. I think that's fair. I would I would also my only pushback with having Spolstra that high is. A, there's some some fatigue in play there because he deserves to be a front runner each and every season, and you know that shouldn't discredit his case each and every year, even if it makes it a little bit tougher to justify having him there in your head. And second, like I think that ultimately the Heat's pieces are easier to coach up. There there are a lot of absences, as you mentioned. There are a lot of really strong contributions from unheralded players. Kyle Lowry is an easy plug-and-play player because he does everything. The same is true of Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo because versatility is the name of the game for them. With Boston, you don't have those same kind of pieces. Marcus Smart, by no means a guy you can just put into every situation. Robert Williams needed a pretty specialized role designed to maximize his abilities. Jason Tatum, still emerging as the star player that Jimmy Butler had already ascended to become. So I, I think even if it did take that midseason turnaround, the ability to get that team to that level through a lot of adversity during the early stage of the season as a first-year head coach, to me, that's a huge selling point. I just, if you looked at how many games their key players have lost, then 100%. And that, that's a huge part of it for me is that they were able to, you know, yes, maybe their, their top end of their players might be easier to coach up. I, you know, the conversation with Jimmy Butler and Jason Tatum is the best player. That's a conversation now. But I think when you look at Bam oh, it's and Tatum. Kyle Lowry, both of them are better than Boston's second best player, Jalen Brown. So I, I totally get that. But when you just look at how much time collectively, like the Heat have missed and then how shallow they were supposed to be, that's what swings it for me. And like I said, I was the, trying to- The way I look at this one- What's that? The way I look at this one is Monty Williams is first, and then those other three names, I don't really care about the order. And that's what gets tough about these awards as we moved into, uh, we'll do six men of the year next, is it's this one, this award is not one of those cases, but you do sort of have to look at like the bigger picture. And it, to me, at least, sometimes I struggle to not fall victim to recency bias based off what's happened over the past couple of months. And that's why, you know, uh, he is, I have a litany of honorable mentions here for coach of the year, as you always do that I won't go through. But yeah, Ime Doka was certainly on, on there, on the short list. So sixth man of the year, another really obvious winner where it's Tyler Hero, 100%. I think that's probably the most obvious winner of all of these, even beyond Monty Williams for coach of the year. Agree? Yeah, it's. I mean, and 
it's just he didn't even come close to like not meeting the quote unquote criteria. Ten starts as we record yeah. this. That's just so yeah. And there is some stuff where it's oh, what can he be part of every single one of your closing lines? It's just the, you look at the numbers he's putting up and the method by which he's got there. There's no contest here. Cameron Johnson, really obvious second place finisher. I mean, he's he is the piece who kind of like puts Phoenix over the top as a defender, as a floor spacer who is just unbelievably deadly from the corner. There's a little bit more ability to put the ball on the floor this season, create for himself, create for others. Far and away, the leading second place candidate. He is, I don't have anything to add, aside from the fact that people need to watch his defense because it's solid enough to the point where if he doesn't elevate you, he doesn't hurt you. And there's there's a distinction in that, but there, it's also really important to have someone who's been this lights out from three. Probably if you were going through a long list of most improved players, he could make it looking at his shooting percentages yep. this year. What I actually would say about it is I'm just curious to see what he could look like in a larger role because of the sort of on-ball flashes we've seen. He's never been necessarily consistent with it, but sometimes he he finishes these drives or he hits these like off-the-dribble jumpers and it's like, okay, whoa. And that's, I'm not saying he's going to be priced out of Phoenix, but with having already paid Bridges, CP3, Booker could be super max eligible, uh, extension eligible this summer. You have Aiton's free agency on top of Cam Johnson being extension eligible. We might get to see it. I hope we don't. I'd like to see this team stay together, but I'm curious to see as Phoenix's roster changes. Maybe we see Johnson in a bigger role with the Suns or or elsewhere. Who's your number three here? I'm curious to see if we. This is the tough one because I think there's a case for Jordan Clarkson filling that volume shooter role. I know that neither of us usually default that way. Uh, Kelly Oubre Jr. has a case, but I'm going to go with Kevin Love here. Uh, averaging 13.4 and 7.2, shooting 38.4% from three on 6.4 attempts per game. He's been a solid spark plug, shown some signs of like that, that old vintage Kevin Love, been an important veteran presence for a Cavs team competing quicker than expected. Granted, Cleveland has been three points per 100 possessions worse when he's on the floor, which isn't a huge selling point in a six-man-of-the-year case, but it's also been operating at such a higher level than expected that it is still outscoring opponents when he's on the floor, even if the performance is ultimately getting worse. So to me, he was kind of the least bad of the leading third-place candidates. I didn't view him as the least bad. I just think he's been good, and he was also my third pick. So we have an identical ballot here. I think, fun fact, by the way, Kevin Love has played in more games for the Cavaliers than anyone else on the team. Would you have predicted that? At the start Hell of no. And that might be a sign of their bad luck. Still, it's, it's a matter of fact after the latest Mobley injury. Just the shooting, they're still the passing. They've been able to find certain front court combinations been able to work with him that you wouldn't think were going to work either. Um, whether he is he your de facto center or is he playing with another big or two, there's, they've been able to... Um, to hold up defensively in a lot of those minutes, uh, especially through the first three quarters of the season. And I think he deserves just a lot of credit for maintaining his offensive efficiency. And this is tangentially related. His demeanor on the bench has just completely mm. changed compared to the, the 100%. previous totally So disgruntled in the previous one, seemed like a trade was inevitable, but he's I, a willing participant now. The names I'll mention quickly, I had Uber Jr. on mine, Clarkson, of course. Montrose Harrell has been like sneaky okay this yeah. year. But even now in Charlotte, we're kind of seeing the novelty fade with him. My actual fourth, and he just, he, I, I almost put him ahead of Kevin Love. Gary Payton, the second in Golden State, might be just uh, the things he does defensively and the way he can move off the ball on offense, but specifically uh, defensively. Uh, I know they call him the mitten for a reason, but like he is just a, a human eclipse that plays so much bigger than he actually stands. And if you have him over 
love. I'd, I'd be hard pressed to make a case for him over Johnson. I, I do think he, sh- I don't know if he will, but I think he could make some top three appearances in real life. And that just wouldn't startle me. I'll be honest that I didn't even consider him because we typically look at scoring first and foremost in the six man of the year race. I wish I had in hindsight because he might be a better candidate for number three than love. That defense has been so impactful throughout the year and has allowed Golden State to try so many different lineups, especially while the stars have been hurt. And I know a lot of people were like, oh, look at how they sort of folded without Draymond Green. It was like they kind of held up defensively for a long time. There was a point where it sort of flipped, but like they were holding up defensively without him for a while. And and GP2 was a big reason why. But as you said, you are kind of drawn to the more of it. And if we were, look, these are, we should have laid this out at the beginning. I'm just making what my ballot is I'm not even predicting who would win. If I had to say, you know, if, if I'm trying to think if there's any deviations here, probably not yet. I think everyone I pick probably should win, but I guess we're going to get to most improved player now. How's that for a transition? My pick is not who I think is going to win. So it's that type of situation. And I, I could put GP two in the top three, but I think just the body of work from Kevin Love, and there is the inherent volume of what he does on offense relative to like GP2 being way more complimentary and having to work more off the ball than Kevin Love is going to. And we're just not being as big a part of the offense. I'm not going to argue, though, if you if you have him over right. Kevin Love. Most Fair improved enough. player. Uh, this is always a tough one. I, I tend to rule out second-year players just as a rule fair. of thumb. I did the same thing this year because I didn't want to get into the Desmond Bain Exactly. Discussions. exactly. Who both would 100% have been considered, but that's the year that we expect to see so much improvement. Correct. And it's also hard because are we looking at players who are going from actively bad to good, from good to great, from great to superstars, because every degree of improvement gets harder as you're a better player. So I tend to try to strike a balance between those, but I found that this year's leading candidates for me are all in that stall bar, star ballpark. Uh, so I have Darius Garland at number one. The importance of the role that he's taken on for the Cleveland Cavaliers, where this felt like it was probably going to be Colin Sexton's team with him serving as a sidekick to this being Darius Garland's team, making life so much easier for Evan Mobley, who scores an unbelievable number of his points off of lobs and feeds from Garland. Same is true of of Jared Allen. He took his game to that proverbial next level as a scorer while also becoming, I would say, unquestionably one of the five best passers in the NBA right now. The creativity, the ease with which he diagnoses a defensive set and then can slip the ball right in there before the defense even knows what its set is supposed to be. It is just mind-blowing to watch how much he's grown on the offensive end. We haven't really seen too much of an efficiency downtick, even though he's taken on such a ridiculously more important, more impactful role for a Cavs squad that has also gone from mediocre to legitimately good when the pieces are available. So he ended up in my number one spot. Number two, I have DeJounte Murray. Kind of a similar story without the team success aspect where this became his team. And the increased importance of what he was doing, along with the growth in so many individual pieces of his game, where he's now this stifling defender who can also lead an offense as a scorer or a playmaker. And when he is functioning as a scorer, he can do it on all three levels. So similar story there. Number three is the betting favorite, John Morant, where he has become a flat out superstar. You know, we, we had had those debates about 
whether you take him or Zion Williamson back when there was this belief that Zion Williamson might play basketball again. And now he's in the MVP conversation. He is arguably the most exciting player in the game. He is the Memphis offense when he's on the floor. He can do absolutely everything. The degree of difficulty of his role, the amount of scouting reports dedicated solely to him, they just don't matter because he's that good. I think you can make a case that even if he hasn't been the best player or the clear-cut MVP this season, that he's been the story of this season when he's been healthy. He has he has been that central to this NBA season, and it's not just because he's some novelty item. He's just gotten that good. So he's that that classic like 2016 Stephen Curry style argument where he was a star and has gotten that much better to the point that he deserves to be considered for an award that typically goes to players who are making the first leap. My ballot was eerily similar. Uh, I have DeJounte That's shocking Murray. given how weird this award is. I have DeJounte Murray won because I, so I totally understand the case for Darius Garland here. Um, I have come to view the second and third year cases as very similar to where I'll consider third year, but you are probably supposed to make your biggest improvements between year two, uh, year one and year two, and then year two and year three. That being said, Darius Garland's on my ballot. Uh, he checks in at number three for me. I have John Morant number two. What's interesting there? Interesting. Um, I'm backtracking here. Is John Morant making the leap from just all star or superstar to MVP candidate? That is the single most difficult. Yes, in the, absolutely. Uh, and by the way, there's been improvement. Like he's a you can't go under screens on him as readily. The floater game is even more unpredictable than it is now. He's a great decision maker after leaving his feet still. Um, and he he got better on defense when he came back from his not. He's injured now, but his first injury this season, I think that was also was a left knee sprain, whatever, ankle injury, whatever it was. So there was a real improvement there. And the fact that it came on for a team that is now second in the Western Conference, and he was a huge part of that. Miles Bridges, for me, was the pick when we did this very early in the year. The obvious pick early. His game is still diversified a bunch. The efficiency makes me a little bit unsettled, that he's never really come up from from three points he's under 33% from three point range this season his two point percentage is right in lockstep with what he was doing last year i just don't feel him as much watching him and when you go you've kind of seen um this progression of where as the season has gone on even more of his baskets are coming off assists than before and that's not to say that's a bad thing but that became splitting hairs with me whereas so DeJounte Murray is my number one pick he is and he is someone now who i think you can run the offense through where it's maybe there's some inherent limitations, but he's hitting the three ball at enough of a clip and on, I'll call it modest volume. He has more unassisted three pointers made this year than Julius Randle. That's a big deal. Like it's, that speaks to how bad Julius Randle's been this season. But like, I was going to say, are we talking about 2021 Julius Randle or 2022 Julius Randle? He has, um, his unassisted three pointers, I had it pulled up. It was more than Julius Randle by like a few baskets. That's, you know, his efficiency on those. They're good enough to where you're okay taking them. DeMar DeRozan is the only other player in the NBA who has scored more unassisted two-pointers this mm. year. That is incredible. And I know there are still going to be limitations on defenses. Are gonna, if, if the end result of a possession is DeJounte Murray shooting a three, let alone DeJounte Murray shooting a self-created three, defenses are going to be happy. But he is someone who has improved his decision-making when he's running the offense in the half court. In transition, he is not making a ton of turnovers relative to how much the the San Antonio Spurs depend on him. And this stat blows my mind. When you look at, this is throughout NBA history, where you've had players, and these are DeJounte Murray's benchmarks, to post a usage above 27, 
a turnover percentage below 12, while assisting on more than 40% of their team's baskets on the floor, it has happened four times. You have DeJounte Murray this year, 2008-2009 Tony Parker, 2008-2009 Dwayne Wade, and 2000-2001 Stephon Marbury. That's it. And by the way, for anyone who doesn't notice this... That is a weird group of players. New Jersey Nets era Stephon Marbury was ridiculously good, though. That's a weird group of players. It's an incredible... The Dwayne Wade... Oh, yeah. It's a great one, but like... I don't think I've ever heard Marbury, Wade, and Parker group together. And so I look at that, that, you know, it, it shows an improvement because you're talking about someone who is dealing with his, the highest usage rate of his career, and then also posing the second lowest turnover rate of his career. That's a big deal. The mm-hmm. And a 40.5% assist percentage, when you're dealing with a Spurs offense, that there's limitations on them too, because they're, they're similar to the Grizzlies where you don't want this team operating in the half court if you're the Spurs. You want to see them get out and run, and they they have the fastest average possession time in the NBA for that reason. Uh, I think DeJounte Murray still brings it all together at a higher peak, and this is someone who, when you look at past players who have won this award, Siakam, Paul George, where it's sort of foretold their entry into All-NBA candidacy, John Morant was in that discussion already. MVP is different from All-NBA. I think Murray's about to enter it or already has entered it. Mm-hmm. And to make that mm-hmm. jump matters more to me. Morant, number two, Garland, three, just by virtue of being in. And you know what? I might move Garland to two now because I don't know how to wait minutes in games. Told you, huh? But no, it's it's <laughs> mostly just John Morant might not play in 60 games. Missing time is big here, but I, I, I just still view the, the the level he reached as what and matters. And I think this award, even sometimes more than MVP, like I kind of not ignore the playing time but playing time means less in most improved player yeah than it does for mvp for me i don't know if that's right or wrong that's just how i'm coming at it so i'll stick with morant at two and garland at three bridges the only four. thing the only thing i want to push back about what you said is with bridges i feel like the not feeling him as much the the effectiveness kind of tailing off was true until recently this eight and two run that Charlotte has been on, Lamelo Ball has been playing out of his mind, but Bridges has too. I think he's at like forty six point eight percent on threes over his last ten games, or something in that ballpark. And all of a sudden, things are clicking again. That's he's awesome. still not. The season is eighty two games long. Oh, I know, I know. I'm just saying, like, I feel like he's getting back to that early season level that had us so excited about him. But there was a long mid season malaise where he was not there. So I, I don't think that he's in the top three. Obviously, he's not on mine. Uh, and he's not on yours either. But I did just want to push back a little about the not feeling him as much recently because I do think that just in time for this play-in tournament, he's starting to turn it back on. The only And I think, I guess you could say all four of the names we mentioned are basically interchangeable. If someone picked Miles Bridges to win it, I'm not going to... I would push back against that now because I still don't know what he is because he's bookended a lot of... Uh, better than mediocrity, but worse than stardom with the, these excellent spurts, as opposed to Garland and Murray and Morant, where I know they've risen to that other level. The only other name that I think we need to mention here is Jordan Poole would belong in the discussion. When you look at what he's been able to do offensively, even on defense, like when the conversation between Poole and Hero it, I guess it could swing on offense if you're looking at finishing and stuff. Like, Poole's just worlds better on defense than Hero is at this point. Uh, he's the only other name I think I would mention where I think he belongs. He would be my fifth. I'm curious. I don't know. Unless if you, you want Bain and Maxi. And yeah, Bain, Tyrese Maxi's in there. I was curious what you thought, though, um, 
David Thorpe was on the the low post recently and mentioned Jason Tatum. I'm just curious how what your I never even thought about him for this award. I'm willing to consider it. I'm just curious as to what you. Thought. I think I think there's a difference between rising to that level like Morant has, and I would argue that Morant and Tatum are at like fairly similar levels these days, and becoming the player you were expected to become. I don't think we knew that Morant had this level to reach. I think we knew Tatum had this level to reach. I, I It would have to hinge on just his development as a passer, but I also, I thought he had made more of a jump there last year than people thought, and perhaps that's why I'm not just, and I know his efficiency is up in one-on-one situations this year, but it's not like mind-meltingly up. So I was, I thought it was interesting and him and Lowe went through just a ton of different names, but I thought it was intriguing that Tatum's name popped up. Are you ready to, to go to rookie of the year? Not even remotely. Me too. What's your ballot look like? I, I don't have one. I refuse. I'll give you my ballot then. Are you ready? No, I, I mean, in all seriousness, like I wrote about, I wrote about this in early March at sports casting where I legitimately wish the award didn't exist this year because <laughs> you have to put down two players to boost the candidacy of one. And I don't really give a shit because all three of these, these leading candidates, no disrespect to Franz Wagner, but he's not going to be in this conversation because the other three are that good, even though he would factor into this discussion in a normal season. And the same might be true for Herb Jones, who's just been phenomenal on defense, but these three players are all so clearly going to be megastars that I hate that we have to pick between them. And I, I, I feel like my, my case changes on a daily basis. So I, it's, it's impossible. I, I have Scotty Barnes, number one, for the full season that he's put together and the ascension during the second half of the season while filling such a key two-way role for what's become the best of these teams. I have Evan Mobley second. His he might have remained in my number one spot had he not been injured, but it, it's tough to make the case for him over Barnes right now without the volume argument because we're seeing the defense slip a little bit without Jared Allen. We're seeing that he is ultimately a little bit more reliant on the setup passes from Darius Garland, whereas Barnes is creating more of his own offense. And then I have Cade Cunningham at three, but he's also been. I would say easily the most impressive of the three in recent weeks. And I now feel pretty strongly that he's going to have the best career of the three, even if all three of them could win an MVP one day. So like I have Cade Cunningham third and I hate myself for doing it because there's a very legitimate argument that he could be number one based on the level to which he's risen for a shockingly competitive Detroit Pistons team during the second half of the season that he is so clearly leading. I view this as a season-long award where you have to weigh in that he missed time at the beginning of the year with an injury, that he was ineffective in the first spurt before he started to get his feet wet in the NBA and just took off. So because this is an award that I look at in totality and not just a level reached at the end of the season, which is so often lost when you just list out the ballot, I can't have him higher than three, even if he is now the first-year player who I would back most vociferously. And so we had some pushback when we had the Who You Got pod between these three players specifically, which was really just augering what we're talking about right now, that Cade shouldn't be in the discussion with them. It was a lazily thought out point, in my opinion, because if you're stopping, if you won't listen to the rest of the pod because we were having 
a debate between Cade, Scotty, and Mobley. Like, you don't even think Cade belongs in the discussion. You're the one who's wrong there. And when you look at true usage percentage for these guys or total offensive load percentage, which is just a better way per B-ball index, and then Seth Partnow of the Athletic came up with true usage percentage, it's just a better way of contextualizing and, and portraying how how important or how how large the share of the offense is that a player is um, responsible for when he's on the court. Kate Cunningham blows Scotty Barnes and Evan Mobley out of the water in this. He is so he he is the all everything to Detroit essentially on offense. Where Barnes has a has I think the best collection of talent around him out of these three. That's not something used to chop him down, but that's what you have to consider when evaluating Cade Cunningham is he hasn't had the most efficient season, but the level of control he has on the game and how, how well he's responded functionally when you watch him play to being saddled with that much responsibility in such what I would argue is the most difficult offensive role of any rookie this season that matters. And so he's number three for me, the playing time came in there. I would push back if someone put number him number one, because I do think that matters. I have Mobley number two and Barnes one. I think the Mobley injury, locked up again. I do think the uh, Mobley injury sort of does swing this in Barnes' favor a little bit because it's going to give him the sample size edge. But when you start to look at the advanced metrics, Barnes leads it in VORP. Um, he leads in total po- NBA mass total points added. Um, he doesn't. He's ahead of every of these two in Raptor. When you look at uh, luck adjusted, regular adjusted plus minus. Mobley is going to win that category out of these three. He also wins in LeBron. Um, but Barnes, this is this was the difference maker for me, whether you like it or not. He has the more he's matched up with more difficult assignments on offense. I think that's because Mobley is more of like a a Giannis, but even more so on the perimeter. So I'm not trying to compare the two. But then you look at offense, and like at this point in the season, we've seen Toronto run their crunch time unit through Scotty Barnes at points. Maybe they're forcing it. That's part of the development and opportunity. He's responded well. Um, when you combine that with him just having a higher true usage and total offensive load percentage than Mobley, in addition to everything else he's done, if you're splitting hairs, that's where I'm going to start to split hairs. I think Scotty Barnes's role overall this season has been more difficult than Mobley's. And not only has he played more, but he's helped elevate a playoff team that is better than Cleveland right now. They're they're comparable when they're both at, at full strength. So that's what I went with, but it is splitting already like thrice split hairs. And if you picked Mobley, just because I do think he's a transcendent defensive talent in a way that I don't know Barnes will ever get there. I value more what Barnes is going to do away from the ball. I value every single thing ever that Evan Mobley is going to do on defense. So it is close, but I think just the combination of the playing time and plus Barnes is winning enough of the advanced metrics has a difficult enough offensive role and even difficult enough defensive role when you just look at how much he's been moved around in Toronto. And yeah, there's sort of the the madness of Nick Nurse cake in there where he just is so brazen with some of the matchups he throws out there. But with Scotty specifically and other players, there's the level of it's also because we can or because we should. And Scotty fits under that umbrella more than the egregiousness of, of Nick Nurse umbrella. Did I get worked up enough for that one? I think I, I'm I'm just like flustered after going through rookie of the year. It's impossible. This next one though was the most difficult one for me, and it was it was even more difficult than rookie of the year. I don't I don't think I feel as passionately about this one because there isn't that same like all three of these guys are going to have just ridiculous jaw dropping careers, and so it feels like unnecessary disrespect to have Cade Cunningham at number three in rookie of the year, even if it's justified. Um, but yeah, I mean this one. This one it was so difficult because of the injuries, because 
there isn't a clear front runner or even set of front runners this year. So like you can easily consider Giannis on the Kumpo for the free safety role that he fills for the Milwaukee Bucks, Jaron Jackson Jr. for his status as a defensive centerpiece for the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, I had Robert Williams III in my number one spot. And I think that case gets a little bit harder to make now that he's out for what, four to six weeks. Uh, but on the flip side, the Celtics have lost two straight games since that happened. They're, they're seven and nine sit without him in the lineup this season and just clearly aren't the same defensive powerhouse without him on the floor. And I want to look past the numbers here, which are overwhelmingly positive for him, uh, partially because defense is so hard to quantify, but also because I think we, we often see players who become schemes unto themselves. Rudy Gobert is, is probably the, the most prominent example in the last few years within the NBA. But Williams had such a ridiculously good skill set as both a primary rim protector and a smothering help defender who can just kind of warp into whatever position he needs to be that Ime Udoka built a unique scheme to maximize his abilities. And this kind of ties in with my desire to have him in the coach of the year race, because by having the Celtics employ these unorthodox switching schemes, he was showing just how important Robert Williams is to this defense. There are so many other good pieces. I actually have Marcus Smart third on my ballot, as weird as it is to have two players from the same team on the same ballot, because Smart keys everything that they do on the perimeter with that switching because he's impervious to matchup difficulty. But it was designed in a way that you can make the most of Williams's otherworldly help defense skills. And it has resulted in a defense that was so far and away the best unit in basketball, I would say on either end of the floor for half of the season, the most important half at the second after the break and, and all of that until he did go down. I have Bam Adebayo sandwiched between the two Celtics. Uh, again, another guy who spent a lot of time injured, but is just so impactful because of the versatility and his ability to bring everything together on the defensive end for Spolstra. But I, I just can't stop myself from wanting to give so much credit to this pair of Celtics defenders that I legitimately considered having Williams first and Smart second. So your ballot is Williams, Adebayo, and then smart. Okay. We had drastically different ballots here. I did not have either of the Celtics on my ballot. And I know Boston now is the best defense in the NBA. That very much seems like a success by committee example. And I'm not trying to detract from what either of them have done. I don't think what Robert Williams is allowed to do on defense works as well without having a, a, a blanket in Marcus smart who can defend one through four. I don't think it works as well without having two really good away from the ball defenders in Tatum and Brown. I don't think it works as well if you don't have Al Horford as a luxury in certain lineups as well. And when so much of what he does is predicated on being sort of a read and react help rim protector, the, the case is diluted a little bit for me. I think more so... See, I would, uh, okay, I would yeah. argue the opposite, though, because much like with most improved player where it's difficult to go from good to great, but it's even harder to go from great to otherworldly. It was an approach by committee and smart isn't as successful without Williams behind him and vice versa, but to go from otherworldly to whatever this Celtics defense 
had been when operating at peak powers. I think that speaks to just how unique and impactful those skill sets were, even if they had to operate in conjunction with each other. But I, I, I totally get your argument too. And I, I think that you can make a, a solid case for like seven people in this award. Right. And look, they you look at the individual defensive numbers and like when Williams plays without Marcus Smart, like the, the Celtics defense is still verging on elite. And so I do think he's a really good defender. How do you also reconcile the fact that now he's going to miss time and he's not even as of right now, he's not the most played big on the roster. Like that belongs to Al Horford. And so I don't want to say everything around him is a safety net. I would argue that Boston's defense is pro- I think Marcus Smart's a more important uh, defender to Boston than Robert Williams. That's just hands down for me. And that's really just, you watch them and that's how you feel. And I know Robert Williams has been a monster. And I think because you have so many talented defenders, for me, it diluted their case. And so I'm going to go in reverse order here. I didn't have Bam at a bio on here either. Uh, maybe I'm waiting playing time a little bit too much there. I know he's picked up since he's returned from his own injury. Uh, the stuff he can do on defense is incredible. I don't know if I'm digging him because he doesn't, I feel like he doesn't do some of the traditional big man stuff as well enough to qualify, but like he's even someone that you trust. If you need him to do what Robert Williams the third does, Bam Adebayo is going to do it better than Robert Williams the third is sort of how I look at it. Uh, and maybe not so much with the help rim protection, but you're talking about having to fend away from the basket. You don't have a case for Robert Williams there. You're shaking your head, but there's no case. No, there's not, but Boston has also developed a scheme that it doesn't need to happen. And so why are you giving Robert Williams a third defensive player of the year? So you're saying it's more scheme-based, is my point. Boston is a tricky one because everything has worked together to create this. I I don't think that if you have a more traditional defensive scheme that Williams suddenly becomes a non-DPOY candidate, he's probably not the leading one because he isn't so fully maximized, but his ability to do what no one else can really do allowed them to put this scheme into place. It's the chicken and the egg argument. Yeah, I guess that's just interesting to say that you think that Robert Williams III is already better defensively than Bam Adebayo. I just, I didn't I say that. You're shaking your head when I'm talking about Bam Adebayo versus Robert Williams III. So what are you saying then? Well, I'm shaking your head when you say Bam Adebayo can do everything Robert Williams does better. I said most things. Like I said, I probably trust Robert Williams. I think you said everything. A, then most things, whatever. Let's we'll go to um, the tape. Then, so I have... Now I'm all thrown after that. I have, th- I do not have either of those guys in balance. My bout is actually, I have Giannis third. Um, I know he has a safety net in Drew Holiday that allows him to do certain things that he wouldn't otherwise. The Bucks defense has actually been better when Giannis plays without Drew Holiday. His positional malleability, even when the matchup data is not going to support versatility, this is someone who has had to play the five for long stretches and Milwaukee's defense is held up. He can still party crash literally everything away from the ball. Still sort of the basis for what everything Milwaukee's able to do. Their defense has not been great, but it's been great when he's on the floor and including during certain of his his solo minutes there. So he came in at number three for me. Rudy Gobert was number two. He is still just the foundation of everything Utah is doing. They are very clearly an elite defensive team when he's on the court. Uh, I do wonder if he should be penalized because he's not able to uplift their transition defense. Then again, that's not really his responsibility to do that. Um, and they seem like, you know, how much do you, discredit some of the moments that he's on the court when it's really just dribble penetration gets through Utah's point of attack or their perimeter in general, because there's just no one who can contain it. There's a, there's Royce O'Neal and that's it, at least on a, a semi-consistent basis. So that was tough. But when you look at, and because both Utah and Milwaukee are not great defensive teams overall this season, and I think the award normally does go to great defensive teams, I think it makes their actual cases a little bit more flimsier. But when I look at what they're doing on the floor and the type of impact they have, and Rudy Gobert specifically, um, that is someone who is manipulating 
every single, almost every single aspect of the opposing offense while doing it more alone than I think anyone on this list that we've discussed um, to this point. My actual pick, and I thought a lot about this, is Mikael Bridges. I had a feeling uh, that's where you're going. Phoenix is second in points allowed per possession overall. And I, where a lot of people are going to go off is that the Suns are actually better defensively when Mikael Bridges is off the court. The assignments that he is tackling, no one we have discussed guards number one options more often. He grades out as having per B-ball index the highest matchup difficulty of anyone on this list. He's actually in the top 10 of both matchup difficulty and um, the time spent guarding the number one option among everyone who's played at least 1,500 minutes this season. He's just in the top 10 of those categories altogether. I think you also look at someone who blends the off-ball and the on-ball. Like You're going to put him on basically every single opponent's best player unless that best player is a big. Isn't going to defend power forward as much as Marcus Smart, but he's equally capable of going after ones and twos and threes. Uh, he is, to me, one of the most, uh, let's say, throw a number on it, five or seven most impactful transition defenders in the NBA. Um, the way that he can change plays when he's forced to guard um, the ball handler after screens. Or if you look, when we talk about perimeter plays, being able to defend both sides of the pick and roll, whenever we talk about that, I feel like we're focusing on bigs. Who doesn't get burned in those situations? You, I think one of the most recent examples, like Mikael Bridges is guarding Joel Embiid in pick and rolls against Philly at certain points. And he's still able to play both sides of, of that pick and roll on the same possession, maneuvering back and forth. It is so hard to make entry passes, pick and roll passes with him just being there. I already mentioned the transition stuff and you just sort of combine that with the night to night workload that he has. He's played in every single game since he's entered the NBA. This is someone who is literally doing it every single night. So I understand there's more nuance and haziness to this award and there are people who are more qualified to talk about it than I am. I don't think you're wrong for putting the Celtics on this. Marcus Smart, I have him at number four right now. Draymond would have been my clear number one if he he's only played in, he he's not even going to play 50 games this year. Uh I also think Bam Adebayo deserves an mention. Also shout out Dorian Finney Smith, who's going to deserve at least like tangential mentions here as well. I would not have picked Robert Williams a third. Maybe I'm too low on him. He's like I think he's an egregious winner if I'm being honest, but I don't like everything you that. said, like I totally get it. This was hard. And I know that we only have two non bigs in the last 25 years that have won this award. And I know that the numbers do matter. And like, when you look at the advanced metrics, you're going to come back with Gobert, Giannis, or what, Draymond. You're going to come back with those three. Plus Robert Williams, the third is sprinkled in some of the advanced numbers really love him, even Embiid, And then even smart sometimes before Mikhail Bridges, but when you look at what he does and how good Phoenix is defensively, and yes, he has Chris Paul by him. He has DeAndre Ayton by him, but he makes a lot of, he ties so much of these different things together. And he's a huge reason why you're also able to navigate certain stretches without key players. So it's Mikael Bridges for me. I guess I could change that by the end of the year. That was the single toughest choice though. And single toughest, this is the ballot, toughest one. if I'm being asked. Yeah, uh, I, I think thought. so too. W without Draymond Green included, just because he hasn't played enough, I think that there are really like seven reasonable choices. The three I mentioned, the three you mentioned, and then Jaron Jackson Jr. And I don't care that much what order you put them in because ultimately, like, I know it seems like it's disrespect to leave someone off your ballot entirely. To me, the gap between one and seven here is pretty small, like smaller than we typically see from two to three in most years. I think in defensive player of the year, you almost rely on there being a consensus 
for most people. Yeah, like just because so much of defense is narrative based too, because we don't know all the schemes and we we don't know if we're watching a game, it's pretty easy to tell when someone messes up on offense. If there's a breakdown on defense, like you and I are not the X's and O's experts who are going to be able to tell you like, yep, that's on that guy. In some cases, sure, but not every time. Right. And that's what it makes it tough for me, but I think it's tough in general, even if you are that person, because even with offense, there's numbers and really granular data that can back up what you're seeing or inform how you're watching something. It just doesn't, the numbers aren't going to do that on defense. And it's why I feel, I do feel a little uncomfortable picking Mikhail Bridges when you're looking at the on and off stuff. But we also, this is probably the situation where you need to rise above it. And so it's just, it's, I'm totally with you. This was, the, this was the top. And that's, one. that's why I'm okay with you saying that you feel Williams is an egregious winner choice. And I'm, I'm good with that. That's not going to change my mind here just because I have not watched a team this season and felt like one player was more integral to a scheme than he was. And that scheme happens to be except the most Draymond, suffocating. Except what? Except Draymond, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, over a large enough sample. But that scheme happens to be the most stifling one in the NBA this season. So those two aligned for me. And my perception of defense is going to be different than your perception. We can't lean on the numbers as much. So if you had said that my MVP choice, my rookie of the year choice, my sixth man of the year choice is an egregious winner, that's going to bother me a little bit because I value your opinion. I still value your opinion here, but it's not going to bother me as much. And in a lot of ways, I'm glad that we deviated from each other on this one because we did not share these ballots except for executive of the year before we started recording. And we've been in lockstep through and through. It's interesting that you say that about Rob Williams the third though, because like I would get that feeling from Gobert way before Rob Williams the third. I even get maybe that. I'm feeling- just, maybe I'm just so used to that with Gobert. And the other thing is like, I do think Gobert is probably more irreplaceable to what the jazz are doing because there's no one else. But like Mikhail Bridges has a, a trickle down effect that makes everyone better. Which is, you know, if you're going to have Gobert or Aiton calling out your coverages, I actually, the article from, I think it was Tim Bontemps, where you had Gobert and B talking about big men directing coverages. We probably don't consider that enough. No. And I know Mikhail Bridges isn't necessarily doing that, but the stuff he's able to do on defense, it changes the way that Chris Paul can operate and even Aiton can operate. Whereas with Aiton and Gobert, I don't know if it's having that same level of trickle down to the perimeter players. Where in Utah, it's very specifically like, we need to funnel guys towards Gobert because there's just no other option. Um, and there's only that's not Gobert's fault. There's only so much he can do from there. And I think people will generally argue that big men can are covering more positions and responsible for more things than perimeter guys. I I don't disagree. Mikhail Bridges just feels like one of the exceptions this year because it's not, I just don't feel like he receives enough credit for being an all-around guy. Where I feel like the the narrative or the spin was he's so good away from the ball. I've always thought he's been a lot better off the ball than advertised. The stuff he does off the ball is incredible, but the ability to toggle between both on the same possessions and then just, he can disrupt transition opportunities, prevent them altogether. Teams, when Mikael Bridges are on the floor, get out and transition so much less with uh, against Phoenix. And he's a big reason why. Um, whether it's because he's ending possessions or sort of erasing them before they start. And I don't know if when people listen, if they're just going to strongly disagree. This was just so tough this year, which I think really is going to make for just interesting year-end summaries. The MVP award, though, was similarly difficult for me after the number one, number one spot. I kind of want to just go through my top five with no commentary, let you do the same, and then see where we don't align, in part because this is the one that we've been talking about all year. And like I have a little discussion fatigue on MVP by this point of the season because so many conversations are centered around 
the I'm almost wondering, do we go through the top three? Because we know we're going to have the same top three. Because those are the three that have been pitted against each other. Unless you went. I did not go rogue. Yeah. So who did, what were one, two, and three? Yeah. So Trey Young at number one. <laughs> okay. Obviously. Obviously. No, I, my number one remains Nikola Jokic. Number two remains Joel Embiid. And number three remains Giannis Antetokounmpo. Uh, and number four, Devin Booker has risen into that spot for me. And five is, is Luka Doncic. We had the exact same ballot. Cool. Oh, no, we didn't. Over? we didn't. We didn't. Nikola Jokic was one. Giannis is two. Embiid is three. I was Booker really was close four. to making that happen, too. Doncic was five. Um, a Steph, I really, I had him in my last MVP ladder. I had him fourth. The, the time that he's going to miss, uh, that's the thing that swung me, maybe more than it should, because I think people are continuing to underestimate his importance somehow, even when shots aren't falling. And we're sort of seeing how much the, like, him being absent is almost boosted his MVP case to me. But if I'm not going to have John Morant in here because of the time that he's going to end up missing, Curry exactly. has played more minutes than John. I want to make that clear. Exactly. But when Luke is going to wind up playing more minutes, everyone on this list is going to wind up playing more minutes than Steph by the end of the year. I, I had Steph six, but that's that was what was tough. So let's start at the top here with the Jokic, Giannis, and B discussion. I'm done with um. I've always been done, but like we gotta the, the team record stuff, like it, it doesn't fucking matter. Like the Nuggets are 15 games. Much, much less the where you sit in your in the seating in your conference. Right. And by the way, the Nuggets is like the Nuggets, this is how ridiculous it is. The Nuggets winning percentage is 59.7. If you have a problem with him winning over Embiid where the six six are at 60.5, they have one few, it's one loss that's separating them right now. And that's in part because Philly is this recording has played fewer games. So I just I can't get there as the team record. I saw even this going- beyond that. I like looking at SRS simple rating system, which weighs margin of victory and strength of schedule more anyway. And Denver is eleventh at two point three six. Philly is thirteenth at two point two seven. Milwaukee seventh at three point four four. So Jokic doesn't even really have the worst team argument to me because not every win and not every loss is the same. And it's just like. He checks every box. Like he's gotten better on defense this year. He's still one of the most clutch scorers when you look at um, late in the shot clock, even specifically. Some of the most efficient scores. Like he's shooting, I think, better than 70% on drives this year, which is incredible because he's not finishing his drives all the time at the rim. His passing, just absolutely absurd. Um, he is, I, and look, he's missing two major pieces to the Nuggets. And I saw this going around on Twitter the other day. It's different situations, but the fact that the Nuggets, are outscoring teams by more points per 100 possessions with Jokic on the floor than the Bucs are doing so with Giannis. That's actually, like, as an anecdote, impressive to me. It's not the end-all, be-all case, but I actually had a harder time deciding between Embiid and Giannis because I can't come right up there with, with... you. I don't know that I can actually come up with a case for having Embiid and Giannis over Jokic unless it's because of the impacts they have on defense and Giannis specifically would be my pick there. If like, if that's the route, I kind of get that a little bit. And but- even then like Jokic's defensive performance has been so understated in a lot of conversations. Or- He's not a DPOY candidate, but when you oh, factor like you in the defensive, a couple months you factor in the defensive <laughs> rebounding, the game saving blocks, the the importance within the scheme, like he's been a very good defender. I believe he's actually second in defensive Raptor per five thirty eight this season. Yeah, it's just, and he's dominating basically every single catch-all metric. That hasn't really happened 
except for Nicole Jokic, like that, or excuse me, that, it's not that it hasn't really happened. That tends to happen for a reason, is my point. And like with Russell Westbrook, when he broke box plus minus and therefore broke TPA during the, what, 2016-17 season, uh, he wasn't dominating every single one like Jokic is this year. And those, like all of the, the, the advanced catch-all metrics, they have different shortcomings. So when you're impervious to any of those shortcomings, that says something. And look, there is a chance that the Nuggets are like, forget about the seeds, but like the, that Thunder team didn't win 50 games. There are 12 games under 500. This Nuggets team is probably going to win 50 games while missing for basically the entire season. their second and third best players. I don't think that's a reason to, you know, Monte Morris has cases. missed that much time. <laughs> What's that? Monte, Monte Morris, Morris has missed that much time. And that's not to detract or take away, like, you know, d- depreciate the case of Giannis or um, Joel Embiid, who didn't have, just had the Ben Simmons empty spot in the rotation. Uh, and I don't think, ironically, I don't think James Harden's arrivals really hurt Joel Embiid's case at all. I thought they would just be, oh, his teammate is too good, and that has not necessarily been the case with Harden. The Giannis versus Embiid, specifically, that's what it came down to for me. I'm looking at the stuff that Giannis is doing. Uh, he has improved as a passer to the point where I'm going to trust him operating in those situations, way, not way more, but more than Joel Embiid. Um, there is like... <sighs> There's a a greater level of his offense is more dynamic than it's ever been. That's the best way for me to state it when you watch him. Coupled with everything he's going to do on defense, I think you can say that Joel Embiid is more of like that backline anchor. But Giannis can do everything on defense, and it's like no, that's probably not his best best position to be the backline anchor. But he's had to be for long stretches at a time. The stuff that he can still do away from the ball or just recover and bail out certain possessions is totally incredible. And it got to that point for me because the Bucs have been struggling at points this year. They've been up and down their defense specifically. He seems just so mission critical to everything they're doing. We've seen Chris Middleton kind of go through it this year. Um, the Bucks at times, the top of their roster just between Drew and Middleton has been better than a lot of what Embiid's been working with for most of the season without Ben Simmons before the James Harden arrival. Like they have their own sh- um, you know, depth issues. They didn't have Brooke Lopez for a ton this year. Uh, I'm ever so slightly giving the edge to Giannis. And maybe it's also because, look, the Bucs are now ahead of the Is it easier for me to say, yeah, the Bucs are second in the East and Giannis is the main reason why? He's done it with probably a little bit more help, but they are reliant on him just as much as the Sixers are reliant on Joel Embiid on both sides of the floor. That was the, there seemed, to me, there's a narrower gap between those two. Agreed. And Jokic is sort of not in his own tier, but that was an easier call to make for me. I think what Embiid has done as a true center as a scorer in today's NBA is just ridiculously impressive. We haven't seen a true center win the scoring title since Shaquille O'Neal in 2001. And he has a legitimate chance to change that, especially if LeBron isn't healthy enough to play in the final games and doesn't meet the minimum games threshold and all that. But 29.9 points per game, 48.9% from the field, 36.4% on threes, 81.6% on free throws while taking 117 per game. And that's typically used as a knock against him. I feel the opposite, where I get, this, I get the sense that officials have to change how they referee when Embiid is on the court because he plays such a ridiculous brand of offensive basketball that features so much finesse and so much physicality. Again, much like Pete Shaq, that you have to foul him to have any hope of containing him. I think if he got a fair whistle, he's averaging 15 plus free throws a game. So I would actually argue the opposite where as much as it's pointed to as a criticism of his game, that he's this foul merchant. 
Yeah, because no one can stop him. And he should spend more time at the stripe than he already does. But the real growth that I've seen on offense from him, even beyond the scoring numbers, is the playmaking, much like Giannis, where all of a sudden he's way more reliable in that role and is making way more advanced reads. He's He's got the best assist percentage of his career by far this season, 24.2%. Previous best was 184 back in 2018-19, and he's coupled that with the lowest turnover percentage of his career, 10.9%, which continues uh, the, the decline in that metric for the last three years. Previously, the biggest weakness, and maybe the only weakness in Embiid's offensive game, was that he could get caught along the blocks, along the baseline, by weak side defenders sneaking over, double teaming him, and he wouldn't know what to do and would throw the ball away or just have it wrestled out of his possession or knocked away. That doesn't happen this year. If you send that second defender, he's going to find the open guy and you're going to pay for it. He is just a ridiculously complete offensive player who is so integral to what that team does. And I, I don't think he has as much help over the course of the season as Giannis has had because Tobias Harris has been disappointing all year. Tyrese Maxey, as much as he's improved, is not of the same caliber as Drew Holiday or Chris Middleton. And there is that that empty roster spot that they had for most of the season until James Harden arrived in Ben Simmons's place. And then all of a sudden, you have to adjust to this new ball-dominant force in your lineup, and he hasn't skipped a beat. So his case is really impressive to me. I don't think that it comes close to matching Jokic's right now. Brian, I know you're listening to this, and I apologize. Please don't hate me more than you already do. Um, but all three of these guys are so impressive, and I would just like to note that I don't think either you or I has said a single negative thing about any one of them. No. Uh, and, also, and I refuse to. I will not do that because I, I will not buy into that. We have to hate one of these guys to, to prop up the other. The one thing that I will that my total lines is I'll be interested to see if anyone picks either of them over Jokic. I'm just going to be interested to see what the case will be. And maybe I'll come away swayed. One thing to note too, this is why it was tough for me to put Giannis over Embiid a little bit, is Embiid has played more minutes this season than Giannis, which is just not something that you would ever expect to say. So I, it was just, it was tough. And so looking at the rest of our, since our ballots were the same, I have the definitive case for Devin Booker right here. And I do think that Chris Paul is more important to Phoenix's offense. Like he gives it its rhyme and reason, its shape, its structure. However, Booker has now played more. Um, the Suns have played about 1,900 possessions when Booker uh, with Booker and no Paul. It's about 1,400 when with Paul and no Booker. Um, the Suns are outscoring opponents by 7.5 points per 100 possessions when Booker is on the court without Paul. This season, when you just look at his numbers when Chris Paul is off the court, um, I already mentioned that Phoenix is going to have that positive point differential, but Devin Booker has really still been like the heart and soul of that offense. He's seen his free throw attempt rate go up. We've seen a decline in sort of his efficiency from beyond the arc, but his two point percentage has still been adequately propped up. I don't think we give him enough credit for his passing, how purposeful and accurate it is to where the passes he's going to throw, even when the assist numbers are not like skyrocketing. And by the way, he's averaging 6.5 assists per 36 minutes without Chris Paul on the court, but maybe he's not throwing the same number of passes, getting the same number of assists but the passes he is throwing matters. There's a scalability to his stardom. When you look at how much he will work off the ball in addition to on the ball, that I don't think other players of his caliber really have. And I do believe that he really solidified himself during the 
when he returned and Chris Paul was out with that that hamstring injury. We're looking at it was a it was a really big sample size when Chris Paul wasn't there. He shot better than 58% on twos. He shot 40.3% on threes, and he was averaging in those games. I don't know why I lost the number, but it was just an astronomical amount. Um, and to maintain that efficiency, get it, he was averaging 28.2 points per game, over 58% shooting on twos, 40.3% on threes, nearly 90% at the foul line while getting there at an admirable rate per 36 minutes. This is someone who is a full-fledged superstar. And there's a chance when you look at what happened to Morant and Curry, like he has a first team all NBA case. Like he, and if he, he will make, he should be on at least the second team. I'm, I'm reticent to say things like that. He should be on an all NBA team, period. Yeah. I don't know how positions are going to shape that. But the definitive case here is I think it's been clear or at least evident if you look deep enough for a while. Devin Booker is so much more than Chris Paul's teammate. And it's really time or Chris Paul's co star. He is an independent superstar. And this is, would the Suns be as good with, without Chris Paul? Absolutely not. But if you took Devin Booker off this team, the Suns are, I'm going to, they are nowhere near title favorites. They are nowhere even near a contender. Devin Booker gives the Suns as much of their championship oomph as Chris Paul. And I do think this year, based on availability and maybe even scalability. Uh, and also, Devin Booker has been one of the clutchest scorers in the league this season by efficiency. But I think that he, just based off the floor time and then maybe the, the scalability of his role, just like there being more layers to it than necessarily what Chris Paul has, where there's more of like a, a dominance to the way that Paul needs to play, particularly on offense. I think he's done more for Phoenix this season in that regard than CP3. The only thing I'd really add is just aesthetically, watching Booker this year, it feels easy. It doesn't matter if he's putting up 49 points without Chris Paul in the lineup or 35 with him in the lineup. Even when he's taking these ridiculously difficult self-created pull-up jumpers against strong defenders, it doesn't even feel like he's breaking a sweat or operating outside the flow of the offense because he's just in this rhythm. And it's hard to get in that rhythm. It's even harder to stay in it. And he has stayed in it all season long. Luka Doncic at five. I wouldn't say a no-brainer pick. No, I, I think do, that you I can make that, you can make good cases for Chris Paul, for John Morant, for Steph Curry. Maybe that's maybe Jason Tatum. That's probably it. There's and look, I know you could point out that Luka started the season slow. Steph went through his own slump. John Morant has missed so much time. And when you look at Luka's, you know, streaky heater, it is spanned like one third of the season at this point, which is like that's not that's like a normal. So. Tatum is a good one too. This is the like I it was said, between it was between him and and him and uh, and Luca for this spot for me. I think you can also Demar Derozan was here for a while, and I had Chris Paul in the top five before his injury. So not a name that I would still put in the top five, but my honorable mentions were Steph, Ja, Demar, Chris Paul, and, and Jason Tatum. I think those are probably the you know Jimmy Butler had floated around some discussions. Defensive Player of the Year and MVP were tough though, and those are we should mention. Thought about Robert Williams here. <laughs> There's like a week and a half left in the season or whatever it is. These would be the two awards where maybe it could change for me. Defensive player of the year specifically, I don't think I've settled on. Everything else, I, I wouldn't say. Your rookie of the year, I mean, if Mobley just comes back and is a I, Tough awards this year. Most improved player, I think you could probably sell me on. Uh, who did you have again? Darius Garland. Garland. Maybe you would yeah. sell me on him by the end of the year. But this was fun. If you haven't done so yet, if this is your first time listening and you enjoyed us, Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us, specifically wherever you get your podcast, download every episode. 
That helps us out a ton. If you've done all that, help us out with promotions, retweet us on Twitter, tell people, um, word of mouth recommendations. Those go a long way for people to check out our pod. If you know, they love the NBA at large, follow us on Twitter at hardwood Knox, follow us on TikTok, also at hardwood Knox. follow us on Instagram at hardwood underscore Knox. follow us on YouTube, join our discord. All the links are in the podcast descriptions until next time. We use the shout out to the one, the only should have probably finished at the top of the MVP ballot, but was certainly an honorable mention. Frank Nielke. That should be shout out to the one, the only soon to be best-selling author of children's books, Frank Nielke. <laughs> <laughs>